Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news, uh, a special interview session today with Daniel Ellsberg and Noam Chomsky. Be back in just a few seconds. Please don't forget the donate button. We, we can't do this without you. And be right back. Once again, joining me is Daniel Ellsberg and Noam Chomsky. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Good to be here. Uh, so Thank you. I've asked uh, Noam and Dan if they would actually kind of interview each other, and I'll jump in if I, you know, if I need to. Uh, but at any rate, Noam's going to go first and ask Dan a question. So go ahead, Noam. Okay. Actually, I can ask quite a lot of questions. There's lots of things I'd like to hear your take mm -hmm. on, which I have a limited grasp of. Uh, one of them that's kind of in the forefront now, I think, is or should be. Uh, there's a good deal of increasingly open talk in Washington, British analysts, others, about the fact that the United States is getting a kind of a bargain out of the Ukraine war, part, quite apart from military industry, fossil fuel industry, uh, Europe falling into Washington's pocket. The United States, as a number of military figures and others have pointed out, is able to significantly degrade the uh, military capacity of uh, its main uh, military enemy at a very small cost to itself and can therefore husband its resources for the major war that it's planning with China. I'm just wondering what your take is on all of this. No, as mine know from inside, it's very profitable to prepare for war, to plan for war, but above reduce for war. For instance, I have it all that arms manufacturers would like very much to break through the limits on uh, war material that we provide to Taiwan uh, that has have been in place since about 79, when Carter made uh, actually recognized Beijing as the capital and there being one China. And Congress forced on that agreement, uh, a separate agreement, that Congress would continue to budget for and we would continue to sell military arms to Taiwan. You're talking about China now. Uh, despite the fact that Carter just recognized Taiwan as a province of China, as virtually all Chinese regard it. And until this century, nearly all Taiwanese regarded it as a, uh, as a province of China. Now there is an independence movement, which has uh, grew up just at the end of the last century and, and earlier, and since then. But uh, generally, they've regarded it as part of China. So we have this kind of paradox of sending weapons to a province of China. We don't send them to any other province of China, Xinjiang, for example, and uh, we don't do that. But this is moves toward uh, seeing Taiwan as a separate part, which of course it is by about 100 miles. And, uh, uh, but it's uh, actually as contradicting the idea of one China. However, Congress insisted we able to send, but with a limit, defensive arms and not uh, you know, excessive amounts. 
And I can't help but believe that there are a lot of people who would like to break through that. They have been increasing the amount, of course, over the years and even more in the last year. And of course, we've been taking a lot of moves like uh, Nancy Pelosi and, and even progressives like Rokana to make visits to Taiwan of a kind that didn't occur before and which are in the line of recognizing Taiwan as a separate, independent and sovereign country. Now, why? Uh, what's, the, what's the pressure for that? And I certainly am not an expert on that area. But I think one contributor, just one, but not an insignificant one, is the desire to enormously increase the sales of arms that we make to Taiwan. No ceiling on that. If it is recognized uh, as a, an independent country, which we're moving toward with these open uh, statements of commitment to defend them from China, then of course an independent country can make alliances. That's sovereignty. In fact, all of Latin America uh, is our sphere of influence in which Countries have limited sovereignty. They cannot make alliances with, quote, foreign powers. We're not a foreign power, of course, in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, they can't um, uh, have bases, for example. If they were totally sovereign, they could. But we were preparing to invade Cuba even before uh, Russia, in response to those plans after the Bay of Pigs, in 61 and 62 were providing arms and not yet nuclear arms. But there were great calls, uh, pressing calls for Kennedy to announce an invasion of Cuba going right up to the moment when actually they turned up with nuclear weapons from Russia. Now, <laughs> I come back, they have no legal uh, status as they don't, clearly. Uh, the position we take is no, no, sovereign countries into uh, separately. What Kennedy is preparing for and was preparing for and all accelerated it when the right buildup uh, appeared, totally aggression was illegal. Uh, we regard it as criminal and illegal for China to uh, claim that it has a right to have uh, to determine the nature of the government and to, to claim Taiwan as its own. But we come back to the question which I don't fully answer. I'll come, I, no, I'll come back to Noam. Aside from the desire to have, I think, Taiwan not only as a purchaser of our weapons, a great profit to our arms sales, but as a base again, as it used to be before 79. They used to have nuclear weapons, US nuclear weapons in Taiwan. I visited bases with nuclear weapons in Taiwan in 1960. And uh, uh, thereafter, I, I don't think the Navy has ever fully reconciled itself to losing Taiwan as a base. And with all this talk about containing China with a circle of, you know, of, quote, friendly powers, a NATO-like encirclement of China, as we did with Russia, um, I think Taiwan would be a, a marvelous uh, part of that circle of containment. It would be uh, just, just wonderful uh, it, to contain China. Uh, from these various things, including parts of China that, that they read as Chinese. Turn the question back to you. I'm wondering what this conception that's now spreading high circles, that we can degrade Russia on the cheap by losing Ukrainian lives to degrade the Russian forces, and we can kind of 
control it enough so that it doesn't lead to the strong Russian response. So we'll just keep it under control. At the same time, preparing for a massive assault on China. And I'm just wondering, for nope. example, recently there were reports about the Marines shifting their tactics to uh, from heavy armaments to island hopping, go back to Iwo Jima and so on. I mean, can they really seriously be thinking that we can be preparing for a war with China where the Marines will be attacking islands as in the Second World War and it's not going to blow up into a total catastrophe? I don't believe they're preparing to invade Taiwan. I think it would be with the, it would have to be with the request or uh, politicians who indeed may have been induced in various ways to make that request, bribed or Im impelled in some ways. But I think what they would, they do not, I cannot believe they have in mind an amphibious invasion of Taiwan. Uh, they do intend, you, as the, as the, like the puppets. Yeah. Hmm? Do you do you really believe that? I think the idea would be that, like our puppet government in Saigon, asking us, and they asked us in some kinds after the Marines had arrived. Fan Wei Quat, I know very well, the Prime Minister, I I, I know very well a fact that Fan Wei Quat, whom I did meet but didn't know well, was not informed that Marines were about to land in Da Nang in 1964. But of course, he endorsed it once it happened. And uh, the, the rest of the involvement there did have the um, uh, appearance of following, asking a request of a government that we described sovereign, although we had created South Vietnam. The US created South Korea. South Vietnam had not existed before. We, we drew a line particularly. Um, Taiwan, as I say, went back and forth and so forth. But for many years, we treated it as an American base. And we didn't do that by invading it. We uh, we had people there who relied on it and profited from it, wanted, in fact, wanted us to um, uh, support Chiang Kai-shek's pretensions that his claim to being the, the ruler of all China, the Democrat, was based on his firm intention to reinvade China. And we supported operations against China from Taiwan and from the offshore islands, some of them a mile and a half from China. And when China was opposing those, they were opposing bases that we're using for covert operations. How to keep them in US, that is, Chiang Kai-shek's hands? And the answer was, there's only one way to do that. They're a mile and a half, some of them, a few more, within sight of mainland China. Only nuclear weapons can keep them away. And so Eisenhower was prepared to initiate nuclear war to maintain islands that are just within sight of the mainland as part of the defense of Taiwan, which we regarded in effect as a, as a, as a subordinate. So um, 65 years ago, it was still top secret that uh, Eisenhower had uh, been ready if necessary, to hold those islands, to initiate nuclear war with the understanding in his eyes that although China didn't have nuclear weapons, read Ukraine, its allies 
and a supplier, Russia, did have nuclear weapons, and Eisenhower expected a response from the U.S. against Taiwan and Shanghai and possibly bases in Japan and Guam that were supporting this effort. In other words, to which our response would be all-out war, which, as I found in 61, the Joint Chiefs expected to kill 600 million people they didn't know then in 1958 or 61. They didn't know until 1983 when nuclear winter became uh, conceptualized and, and predicted by many scientists and it confirmed by today that it wouldn't be just 600 million uh, that would be killed. We expected to attack, we planned to attack, we targeted every city in Russia over 100,000 and 80% of the cities over 25,000 and the same in China. That's where you get up to 600 million and fall out from those attacks. But what we didn't figure then was that the smoke from the burning cities would be lofted by nuclear attacks. Hard to do this with non-nuclear attacks, but possible. We did it in Hamburg, Dresden, and Tokyo. Created firestorms that lofted the smoke into the stratosphere where it wouldn't burn out. But that was only three cities. With 100 to 200 cities of that smoke in the atmosphere, and you get that firestorm every time with nuclear weapons, then it blocks the sunlight, 70% uh, of the sunlight for years up to a decade. It kills all harvests and it starves nearly everyone to death. Not everyone, some Argentina. Uh, Alan Rose having dinner with us tonight, actually, uh, leading environmental scientists. 90 to 98% starve to death in a year. He has a big peer-reviewed study that says it will be over 5 billion. He was telling me it'll be a lot more than that. So that's what, uh, I'll bring this up to today. That's what we're facing now with a prospect of continuing this war, including moving toward the invasion of Crimea and the full expulsion of Rush, all Russians from the Donbass, where Russian troops have been for eight years now. They've all got to go. Putin has said he is prepared to use nuclear weapons to prevent that, that Crimea, for example, is a, a trigger if, if he's really facing expulsion, which he wouldn't be, in my opinion, from Ukrainians alone. But if some people, including many major factors in Ukraine, including Zelensky, someone, want and get direct U.S. involvement uh, on this, then not just a matter of arms sales and provisions, but troops and uh, pilots, not just F-16. Then Putin would be seeing a real challenge in Mia as well, and Donbass. And I, I think uh, not bluffing. He could be. People have bluffed in the past. And they're not bluffed in the past. And I don't think he's bluffing. Now, I am getting away from your point that there are people who don't want to press it to that point because they want war with China, which is a nuclear power, of course. And uh, actually, China doesn't have the number of weapons that the Russians do. Uh, and China doesn't need a first use threat like Putin in its own region. For 20 years since Clinton sent 
carriers in the Taiwan Straits as a as a challenge to them when they were they were sending testing missiles in the area of Taiwan. So we sent two carriers in that. The Chinese have been building up their conventional capabilities, including anti-aircraft carrier cruise missiles and a lot of airfields and other things, so that U.S. can't do that again. And uh, they and they will control it. It's pretty well recognized that they have at least conventional parity there, if not superiority. That's the difference from Europe. We used, that used to be the way it was in Europe. We thought there was an overwhelming conventional superiority of Russian Soviet troops against West Europe. Now, that was always uh, hyped up, a hoax, it did. But there was a basis for that supposedly rationalized the idea that we would initiate more, the basis of NATO planning. We don't have to do that anymore in Europe. Why is Putin doing it? Because he's in the position we used to do. He's imitating our old policy. Uh, he has a conventional inferiority in Europe. So he's doing what we did for 70 years, threatening initiation for global war and blowing the world up. It has no more uh, justification than we had for 70 years, and we're still making it. And here's the point I was leading up to your question. President Biden could easily, actually has said in 2016, when he was just, just leaving office as vice president, he couldn't think of any circumstances in which it would be to the benefit uh, to initiate nuclear war or to threaten it. That was Vice President Biden in 2016. He ran on that in 2020. No first use. We will not initiate nuclear war, which seems, you know, sort of a bedrock of sanity, except for the fact that we have been saying the opposite for 70 years. But here we had a presidential candidate who was at last recognizing that it would be immoral and insane to initiate nuclear war anyway. Well, he's been in office two years. He hasn't said that. He's not going to say it. He could very well afford to say that in so that he could say, quote, threats are now unjustified, totally immoral as they are, uh, and with no longer saying, and we're saying the same. And hard for us to say that now because that is NATO policy right now, what he's, what he's threatening. And he won't say that, I think, because many Americans feel he will need that threat in Taiwan, that to hold on to Taiwan as an independent state, in effect, which we haven't openly recognized, but saying that we'll defend them, it goes pretty far. We can't assure a conventional defense. We could actually defend it uh, with, with non-nuclear weapons. But if Biden says no nuclear weapon first use threat for Taiwan, he will be accused by political factors and authoritative people saying, you are right now inviting a Chinese invasion into Taiwan. And that goes along with uh, our ideology and our commitments of the last 50 years, you know, very openly till 79. And after 79, as we move toward reading Taiwan as an independent to which we are in effect allied, we're back to threatening it. So uh, in short, we need Putin's threat for Taiwan, even not in Europe. And that is what makes me a little pessimistic. 
with that without pressure, Biden will not do what he would be, I think, quite willing to do in Europe. Well, based on your incomparable experience with these guys, is it conceivable in your view that they are now thinking, the gang around Biden, that they can calibrate the war in Ukraine carefully enough so as to keep degrading Russia, sacrificing Ukrainians, not lead to an es uh, a Putin escalation at the war of the war, and at the sound, same time, prepare the Marines, your old friends, to start island hopping in a planned war against China, which they will somehow be able to calibrate as well to keep it short of Chinese nuclear weapons and gain uh, the, the goal of degrading China as well. Can it be that they're really thinking of that? The, um, the Marines, as I understand it, moved away training in the recent years for amphibious operations, which I were the essence of my three years in the Marines uh, as a platoon leader and then company commander, but as a battalion planning officer, assistant battalion planning officer. It's all for amphibious operations. But now, you know, gradually much more helicopters instead of landing craft. Uh, I, I probably went down the nets of the, from the ship, a rather challenging uh, project, actually, when you have a big pack on your back and weapons, and uh, more than 100 times, and practice it all the time. So, and of course, based on the island hopping of World War II. Yes, uh, they've been rehearsing now for helicopters for a long time. So the, I don't think they've been, but they do, as you say, seem to be moving back. I don't know the details on this, but they are moving back toward more uh, operations like that in their training. Now, something that occurs to me, uh, which my memory isn't uh, too precise on, but hasn't China been very much warming their, um, their relationships with the Solomon Islands? Isn't that where Guadalcanal was? My first brother-in-law died in 19, the Battle of the Tenero in Guadalcanal. Well, before, they can go back to that, I guess. And, and then we have the islands uh, that the Chinese have built up in the South China Sea, uh, to some extent, you know, for airstrips and so forth. Yeah, you could, you could take over those. But um, I, I do think, by the way, coming back to the first part of your question initially and now, the attitude on Europe. Uh, what do they plan there? It's true. They're especially Republicans seem to be sounding almost sane uh, direction on Ukraine in the sense of not an in you know not an an indefinite amount of escalation here. Not forever. Not forever. Uh, you even have um, uh, what to say. <laughs> How shall I describe Marjorie Taylor Greene? Uh, but, uh, you know, a, a maniac uh, uh, saying it would be insane to invade Crimea. Well, that's that's true. And you have Democrats who are denying that and going along with uh, Zelensky's pronounce, we're going to invade Crimea. Uh, <laughs> so 
the the Taylor Green things I have used, but I'm afraid not good even for a joke, but I have used instead. I do have a principle. Can't count on, you know, you might think you could use as a compass point somebody who is always wrong. Uh, Lindsey Graham offers himself uh, for that, for instance. And one would think Marjorie Taylor Greene. But uh, I've often said, you can't count on anyone to be wrong on everything all the time. And uh, as I mentioned that, even somebody even said to me, friend, even Lindsey Graham had a good resolution on immigration the other day. So maybe I've been uh, misjudging him. That means you just can't set your compass cord uh, opposite to these people or reliably, pretty reliably, though. So in Europe, I think that the Democratic uh, leaders that are, I mean, like Lincoln, Austin, Sullivan, and Biden have shown a willingness and even a desire for the war in Ukraine to continue indefinitely at this level and somewhat higher. I don't think they want, I'm pretty sure they don't want nuclear war, but it's like, uh, as Condoleezza Rice says, we don't want the smoking gun to be a, 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 a mushroom cloud. Well, how do you know you've gone an, enough by oppressing the Russians and too much? And you know it when this from cloud comes up. Oops, we're far. And Crimea offers itself as abyss. I don't think they want a two-sided nuclear war or even a one-sided one in Europe. They are threatening a one-sided war in Taiwan, and I think they'll continue to do that. Putin is threatening what he hopes, I believe, is a one-sided war to hold on to Crimea, where virtually all Russians, I understand, do regard that as part of Russia, you know, an existential threat to lose it and so forth. Um, and he has a lot of support for that. But uh, Donbass, you know, is more of a complicated issue. Will he really blow up the world to keep uh, all of his troops in the Donbass as opposed to going back to pre-2023 uh, and uh, 2022, February uh, 24th? We don't know. But as Noam, as you keep pointing out in other channels, it's outrageous that there is no negotiation going on. Uh, on this point, to be no communication. The fact that uh, uh, Blinken's and Lavrov's foreign minister's first discussion since the war began was 10 minutes uh, a day at a conference, which Blinken used to say, get all your troops, withdraw out, in effect, withdraw from the Crimea. That's not going to happen. But a nuclear war, I think he knows. So that's we can just say no communication. Well, that's uh, outrageous in in terms of the interests of the world. But I think they to keep it going. There's nothing but benefit for the ruling circles in this country. The uh, profit to the military-industrial complex, the the share profits of uh, Lockheed, Raytheon, General Dynamics, uh, Boeing. Have gone up, as have the profits of the oil companies, and I would say they're not going down. 
And but even more important, as you said, that for the arms sales aspects is the fact that NATO is back, having appeared to have no purpose, no rationale since about 1992 with the end of the USSR, the end of the Warsaw Pact, the Warsaw Pact uh, moving, you know, not existing as a Russian uh, set of satellites. It seemed to have no purpose of NATO. And now Putin back as an enemy. It's a unifying factor for NATO without uh, with the US at its head. I have to say, the, 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 we, uh, we've taken on, and with a lot uh, consensus, the role of a military protector uh, in Europe, a protectorate, first in West Europe, now in East Europe. Now, it's hard to get the benefits of being a protector, a protection racket, unless you're protecting them against somebody. And I think that Kennan's and Gorbachev's desire for a peaceful, democratic Russia to be part of a peaceful, democratic Europe uh, community from, uh, you know, from Lisbon to Vladivostok, but anyway, from Lisbon, very wide European community. That was not desired. Kennan said, you know, you won't get this if you go into Ukraine. Matlock, uh, Burns, others said, many psychologists said, you can't have a peaceful democratic Russia if you talk about going into Ukraine. And if you get Ukraine in NATO, I mean, uh, you will have very bad relations with Russia. And I think that was heard by other people in Canada. Aha, that gives us our roadmap. We'll do everything we can to uh, get Putin in this and to look like an enemy and to do things that make enemy appear, which I, that's a trap I, he fell into. And uh, so we have Putin back. That's full. We have all the benefits now of being a protector of Europe against, and it is indeed committing aggression, massacring people, and uh, in every way encouraging people. F-35s. He's the greatest salesman for this dog of a plane, F-35, which is in the shop all the time and uh, cannot fly near a thunderstorm because it doesn't have good lightning protection. And all the other competitors for, for fighter bombers and Saab Gripen and Dassault and others, Raphael, they're all out. It's F-35s all over. Well, that's okay with Lockheed. They've been, they've been lobbying for that since the 90s. So anyway, uh, it's a it's a perfect little war, as they used to say, the Spanish-American war. Uh, in this case, can't go on too long, but with the constant risk of inciting uh, Putin to carry out threats of the kind we have often made, but haven't yet been carried out. Well, actually, Lindsey Graham, who you mentioned, is one of those who's been celebrating the fact that the U.S. is degrading the Russian military uh -huh. with very little expense to ourselves, a great deal of expense to Ukraine and the rest of the world. But notice what's happening. NATO is now at its last summit an Indo-Pacific power. We have now been able to enlist Europe in our the planned confrontation with China, 
which is pretty much bipartisan agreement, is the main conflict. We'll sort of somehow calibrate things so that it doesn't get out of hand in Europe. We'll fight to the last Ukrainian, as some are putting it. But meanwhile, we'll prepare for China, where we've now, the U.S. has now sent, it's not only the shift in the marine strategy, which I mentioned, the U.S. now has, uh, for the first time, established permanent bases for B-52s in Darwin, Australia, in Guam, maybe pretty soon in the Philippines. They're now building up, again, the military connections with the Philippines that had declined. And it looks as though they seriously think that they can somehow uh, continue to provoke China also with the commercial war, which is trying to prevent China from any technological and economic development, maybe bring them to their knees. Can they really? I mean, judging by what you've seen on the inside, can anybody be crazy enough to really be thinking this? I haven't been on the inside for a long, for about the time, since about I got to know you and read your books and uh, be influenced by you. Uh, so I'm, I'm not on the inside. In fact, I want to ask you, uh, and I'll tell you one, I want to ask you, what is your opinion here? By the way, your your book was about American power and the no mandarins. I'm just looking at it. I'll tell you why in a minute. But of course, that looked at the Pacific War in uh, World War II in a way that totally changed my understanding of it as somebody who'd grown up uh, slightly <laughs> from 10 to 14 uh, during World War II. And it certainly changed my attitude. So why they do seem to be acting that way. Not all of them, but not every politician, but most of them actually, and more Democrats than Republicans, uh, in, in, certainly in Europe, on Europe, but also on the Pacific. Why? I, I don't know. I'll tell you right away, as an outsider, I don't know why they are acting as if they want war with China. You tell me. Mm -hmm.